Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you to open up God's Word and to hear what He has to say to us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19. Uh, If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we want to invite you and encourage you to grab a Bible from the seat in front of you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word open on their laps because ultimately it's not about what I have to say this morning. It's about what God has to say to us through His Word. Well, as you're turning there, uh, many of you know that we as a church family have been taking a nice light stroll through the book of Revelation uh, since April. And uh, as we have been doing that, I don't know about for your life, but certainly in mine, how the Lord has been using his word, uh, it has been a great challenge and an encouragement, and we pray that that's been the same for you. And uh, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, back in April, Pastor Doug told us that John is the one who's writing it, and he's writing it to a group of Christians who are in the midst of extreme suffering, In fact, all throughout the book of Revelation, we see suffering over and over and over again in many different ways. And even recently, when we looked at Revelation 13 and 14, uh, in both of those chapters, there is a call to God's people, and it stops the flow of the text, and it says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, Now, as we've been seeing suffering in the book of Revelation, uh, we've also been reminded of a couple of things each and every single time it's come up. And the first thing is this, one of the most foundational things throughout this series has been a return over and over and over again to Revelations chapters four and five. Because in the midst of everything that is happening in this book, we have to constantly be reminded that our God is the sovereign king of the universe and that he alone sits on the throne and everything that is happening in the book of Revelation and everything that is happening in our world right now doesn't come as a surprise to our sovereign king seated on the throne. But we've also seen this, that the suffering experienced in the book of Revelation is limited. In other words, God is restraining the degree of suffering that the people are experiencing and as the book unravels, we see that being heightened and heightened and heightened And we also see that that suffering is not only limited, but it is also meaningful. Like when we see in Revelation chapter 12, where it says that we have overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, and that God's people are rejoicing in the suffering that they've incurred for the sake of Christ. Now, as we turn to 1 Peter, the entire book is a call for Christians to stand firm in God's grace to stand firm in God's grace. And the passage that we're looking at this morning in chapter four is specifically a call to stand firm in God's grace even in the midst of suffering. Now, when I say the word suffering, uh, I wanna be sure to define exactly what we're talking about. And so for the purposes of what we're doing here this morning, I wanna split suffering into two different categories. Surely you could split it into many different ways. But for what we're looking at this morning, we have to make this distinction. And so first, I'm going to call it general suffering this morning. General suffering is suffering that every single one of us in this room have experienced at some point in our lives. Possibly we're experiencing it right now. And for those of us who are like my age and younger, 
there's a reality that the most extreme suffering that you're going to face is probably before us. Our hardest days have not yet come. And this is a suffering that we all experience. It's suffering due to loss, maybe of a family member, maybe of a job, uh, maybe of something else that's going on in life. It's suffering due to illness, uh, maybe a debilitating disease or a diagnosis that you received that you never expected to receive, and now all of a sudden everything in life has changed. Uh, Perhaps for you, when I say the word suffering, you're thinking of your son or your daughter whom you told about the gospel of Jesus Christ and they have turned from walking according to the way of the Lord, and they're living according to this world. Or perhaps for you, when I talk about suffering, you immediately think about a broken relationship, uh, be that a marriage, or with a family member, or with a friend that you never thought that relationship would dissolve. And I wanna be really careful to say this this morning, that all of that suffering is real, that that suffering is not relative. It's not as if we look at that suffering in our lives and we say, well, what they're going through right now, that's way worse than mine, so I don't, get the, I don't get the ability to sit here and be upset about the things that I'm suffering. That's not how God's word talks about suffering at all. And yet this morning, that's not the kind of suffering that we're gonna be talking about. The kind of suffering that we're gonna be looking at in First Peter is a specific suffering. It is a suffering for the sake of Christ. Suffering for the gospel's sake. In fact, 1 Peter talks about suffering for Christ's sake more in this five chapters than the rest of the New Testament letters combined. And so Peter is very concerned about this idea or this understanding that we as followers of Jesus Christ will experience a specific kind of suffering and it will be due not because of what we've done, or because of the things that we're experiencing in our lives that many others experience, but it will be specifically for the sake of Christ. And so Peter is very concerned about this. Now, uh, just as I was preparing this message, Pastor Doug came to me a a couple months ago, and he said, hey, uh, I'd really like for you to take this Sunday, and as you're taking it, uh, I want you to preach a message on something that's related to the book of Revelation. I don't want you to necessarily preach from Revelation, but a topic that concerns what's going on in Revelation. And so as I was thinking about it, my first thought was, well, you know what? Suffering seemed to come up over and over and over again. I think I want to take the morning and I want to talk about that and talk about how we can trust in God in the midst of our suffering. But as I was thinking about that, uh, I was thinking about more of that general suffering that we all experience And so I was thinking about what I can take in God's word and begin to unpack a message dealing with general suffering. And as I did that, I said, you know what, I'm gonna go to 1 Peter because it uses the word suffering over and over and over again. And so I started spending the time studying it and as I was studying 1 Peter, it became abundantly clear to me that Peter is not just concerned about general suffering, but he's concerned about this specific suffering. And so I had a choice. My choice was do I talk about what I wanna talk about and make God's word be about what I want to be about? Or do I surrender myself and submit myself under God's word and say, God, what would you have to say to our people this morning at Harvest Indy West? Well, this morning I've chosen to do the latter, and so uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter and seeing what God's call is to us as Christians to stand firm in his grace even in the midst of suffering. Now, uh, before we get into the text, and we're close, but I also want to mention this. 
Before we get into 1 Peter chapter 4, I want to address the fact that each and every single one of us address a conversation or a message from God's word about suffering in a different way. Uh, Many of us in here, as soon as we talk about suffering or Christian suffering, the first thing that comes into our hearts is fear. And we get all kinds of crazy images in our heads from movies that have been produced about Christian suffering or stories that we've read about other people who have experienced suffering for the sake of Christ. And we start imagining, well, what would this suffering really look like in my life? And it causes fear and anxiety and worry to rise in our hearts. And oftentimes, that's where I am. Now also, uh, there are some who come and approach a conversation on suffering for the sake of Christ with great boldness. And you are absolutely confident that if the moment of suffering came where it was your life or the gospel of Jesus Christ, you could confidently say that you would choose the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say to you, brother and sister, rejoice in that gift that God has given to you because he hasn't given that to all of us to think that way and to have that kind of faith in the Lord And so this morning, uh, the message is for both of those groups to encourage those who may be fearful and also to encourage those who may have boldness to give gratitude to the Lord. But then there's a third category. The third category of us in this room when we talk about suffering for the sake of Christ is what I've termed the indifferent The indifferent. As soon as I started talking about suffering this morning for the sake of Christ, you said, well, we live in America, Cody. Do you not realize that we don't have a whole lot of suffering for the sake of Christ? So everything that you're about to say uh, may not concern me. How is it going to be directly applicable to my life today? And let me first say this. First, our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world are experiencing suffering for the sake of Christ. Some, as soon as they come to Christ, whether they're 10 years old, 20 years old, or 50 years old, the moment that they proclaim Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are cast out of their family, never to be spoken to again. In other cultures, when people come to Christ, their family kills them because they're protecting the honor of their family, and it is incomprehensible for them to have somebody in their family who would turn from what they've been walking after and turn to Jesus Christ. And so our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world are experiencing suffering right now in this moment for Christ's sake. This is not a rebuke to say, well, you should think in that way. It's just a reminder of what is happening around the world. And secondly, let me say this. Suffering for the sake of Christ is imminent. Suffering for the sake of Christ is imminent. We've been talking in the book of Revelation about Jesus Christ and his glorious return, and every single one of us in this room have been wondering, Doug, what are you? Are you pre-trib? Are you post-trib? Are you mid-trib? Do I have to go through the tribulation? What's the deal with all of this? Should I be prepared? And God's word is very clear to us. The answer is yes. Emphatically, yes, we must be prepared to suffer well for the sake of Christ And just as Christ's return is imminent, so is suffering that we might experience. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be prepared to suffer well for Christ's sake. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, says, Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so, Father, as we approach your word this morning, God, we ask that you would instill in our hearts a great courage and strength that comes as a gift from you and not from ourselves, that you would help us to stand firm in your grace when the moment of suffering comes, and that you would receive all of the glory for it. In Christ's name, amen. First Peter 4, verse 12, he starts out by saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Why would Peter have to begin this passage of Scripture by saying, Beloved, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. And if you flip back just one page in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have to understand who he's writing to to know why he would have to start this section with a comment like that. 1 Peter 1, it starts out by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. See, Peter would have to tell these brothers and sisters in Christ that they should not be alarmed or surprised when the fiery trial comes upon them because of who they are. See, first, they're called God's elect. And so in some way, they are God's chosen people. If you continue in chapter one and look in verses three and five, it talks a little bit about their being chosen by God. Uh, it has two passive actions. In other words, things that they didn't do for God, but things that God did for them. And it says this, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope in Christ Jesus. He has caused us. We didn't go after it on our own. It's something that God did to us. Secondly, it says that you who are being guarded by faith for a great salvation. So it is God who causes us to be born again to a living hope, and it is God who is guarding us in our faith for our great salvation. And in that way, these are the elect people of God that Peter is writing to. Secondly, he calls them exiles. He says to the elect exiles. And as you read throughout the book of 1 Peter, we get clue after clue after clue of who these people may have been. It tells us that they're in the dispersion, which means that they're in this area outside of first century Palestine. And they likely heard the gospel for the first time in Acts chapter two where the Holy Spirit fell on Peter and he was the very one who preached the gospel to them for the first time. And so here they are living as Gentiles their whole lives and everything in their life was about living in this world. 
And everything in this life was about seeking comfort and ease and security, and they were completely at home in this world. And then the moment that they turn their lives to Jesus Christ, repent of their sins and believe in his name, instantaneously, they are no longer at home in this world, but now they are strangers and exiles in a place where they used to have comfort and ease. You see, they weren't like the Jewish people living in first century Palestine. Uh, They were not like them who understood what it was like to have suffering and oppression brought upon them by the Roman Empire. In fact, they were citizens of the Roman Empire enjoying that kind of oppression on other people. And now all of a sudden, they are strangers and exiles. See, for these brothers and sisters in Christ, it was a brand new experience for them to be a part of the cultural minority. And they were experiencing isolation and a personal hostility, likely for the first time. And in the midst of this climate, they had a temptation to keep a low profile and to compromise whenever necessary. Whenever it came between their life, their ease, their comfort, and Christ, they had the temptation to say, well, I'm not used to this. And so surely, I shouldn't suffer for Christ. You see, they were a little confused about what was happening in their lives. They were saying, I thought when I came to Jesus, it meant that I was serving the eternal king of the universe. And so why? This doesn't make sense that I would suffer if I'm a Christian. It would make sense that God would protect me and I would never have to experience any kind of discomfort or, uh, or disease or frustration or suffering for the sake of Christ. And they're wondering, what's wrong? What's going on here? Something is not going according to plan. And 1 Peter 4 verse 12 says, brothers, hear me. This is exactly according to plan. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. See, Peter knew that this was part of the plan because he was there in John chapter 15 when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, in other words, because you are exiles, and because I chose you, You are elect. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Peter knew that suffering was a part of God's plan, and he was encouraging these brothers that this is well within the sovereignty of God. And so verse 12, Peter encourages all of us this morning to understand that Christian suffering is normative. Christian suffering is normative. It is a normal experience for a believer in Jesus Christ. Cody, how do you know that? Because every single book of the New Testament talks about suffering for the sake of Christ. And so don't be misled this morning about what it means to follow after Jesus. It doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy and that everything in this life is just going to come to us with no problem at all. No, what it means to follow Jesus is that suffering is the rule, not the exception in our lives. So we need to be ready to suffer for Jesus Christ. Verse 12 continues, and it says, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
that phrase there, when it comes upon you, Peter is telling us two things. Number one, Peter is not instructing us to be a masochist. He's not calling us to go out and pursue after suffering just so that we can say we've suffered for the sake of Christ. Oftentimes, I've left hearing messages like this one this morning and thought, well, I don't know how much I've suffered for Christ. And so, you know what? I need to go out there and find some way to just really suffer really, really bad for Jesus because then I'm holy and then God loves me more. And that's not what 1 Peter is telling us at all. Again, it's passive. It's when it comes upon you. And secondly, I think Peter is saying this. He's saying, I know that you're not experiencing extreme widespread suffering right now, but know that it's coming. And when it comes, you need to be prepared for it. First Peter was written right before Nero persecuted the Christian church. And so at this point, the people were experiencing, you know, people maligning them and saying evil things about them and maybe casting them off or marginalizing them, but they weren't experiencing death or torture for the sake of Christ. And Peter's preparing them. He's saying, you guys need to be ready when it comes upon you. I remember uh, the first time that I experienced suffering for the sake of Christ. I was in second or third grade, and uh, my family was part of a carpool. And so after school, I would go home with one of my friends and hang out at his house until uh, I was ready to go home. And uh, as I was there, I don't know what happened that Sunday before as I was worshiping with my church family, but uh, I heard the gospel, and I was really cranked up about the gospel. And uh, so I was just sitting there, and I think we were playing blocks or something like that. And I said, Eric, uh, you know, if you don't love Jesus, you're going to hell. And uh, Eric started crying. And then Eric ran and told his mom. And then his mom immediately proceeded to call my mom and say, you need to come pick up your lunatic of a son. And by the way, uh, you're not invited to do this carpool with us anymore. Now, uh, I probably could have exercised a little bit more tact in sharing the gospel with him. And yet I wasn't looking to like experience suffering and be kicked out of the carpool and inconvenience mom and dad. I was just trying to be faithful to Jesus, however unskillfully I was pursuing that. So when it comes upon you, brothers and sisters, be ready. Don't be surprised. Verse 13, but rejoice. So don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Hear me on this this morning. If we follow the slain lamb of God, then it makes perfect sense that we should be prepared to suffer as he did. If the one whom we worship and serve and seek after is the slain lamb and referred to that way over and over again in scripture, then we should be prepared to suffer as he did. You see, when we suffer, and this is what Peter's bringing in verse 13, he's telling us that when we suffer, it's demonstrating our union with Christ. Just like Christ suffered, we are sharing now in his sufferings. And Peter, I think, is reminding us that it was the God-ordained suffering of his son that secured my salvation. It was the God-ordained suffering of his son that secured my salvation. And if you are in Christ, then it was the God-ordained suffering of his son that secured your salvation as well. All throughout the book, 1 Peter, Peter's telling us uh, that the victory on the cross, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is equivalent to 
the sufferings of Christ. In verse 2, or I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 21, it talks about suffering as following in Christ's footsteps. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, it says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. In 1 Peter 4, verse 1, it says, since Christ suffered. Over and over again, it's a reminder that God's children will suffer. And so you say, that's fine, Cody, I get that. We're gonna suffer, but how am I supposed to rejoice in the midst of that suffering? And that's why I love God's word because it tells us in the rest of verse 13. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Brothers and sisters, we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering because we know the end of the story. And that we can rejoice and be glad as we keep our eyes fixed on what's to come when Jesus Christ gloriously and visibly returns in all of his power and he brings us who are exiles in this world into our home. If we keep our eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus Christ, then we can rejoice even in the midst of our suffering. So exiles, Brothers and sisters in Christ, remember this is not our home and we shouldn't expect comfort and ease while we're here. But do know this, there is a home that Christ himself has prepared for us and he is coming and when he comes, he is going to bring us to that place forever and ever. There is a home that we are going to be brought to because of Christ. Verse 14 Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, Peter was also there in Matthew chapter five when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount and he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, fixing his eyes on what's to come in the future. So if 1 Peter 4.13 reminds us of our union with Christ, then 1 Peter 4.14 reminds us that when we experience this suffering, that we are not the ones who have to go through it on our own and just white knuckle it and like bite down hard and just endure it. Because the verse continues in 14, and it says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so as I started talking about suffering this morning, and if fear was the very first thing that you experienced in your heart, then know this, the Holy Spirit of God will empower you in the midst of your suffering. The Holy Spirit of God will empower me in my suffering. I will not have to endure it alone, but I will experience a supernatural, outside of myself power from the Holy Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, in the midst of my suffering. See, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said to Peter, behold, I am sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. 
For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus promises us, and Peter reminds us of the promise, that if and when we experience suffering, we will experience supernatural power from the Holy Spirit to endure that moment of suffering. So at this point, in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, Peter is talking about what a glorious opportunity it is to suffer for the sake of Christ and that we should rejoice in that suffering. And so he, he understands how he is in his own heart and he understands what might be happening in your hearts right now where it's like, I just wanna get out there and suffer for Christ. And so I'm gonna bring it upon myself and here we go, all for you, Jesus. And so he goes to verse 15 and uh, essentially he says, but don't be a fool about it. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So he takes a pause and he says, don't be foolish about incurring some kind of suffering. Don't be deceived. Suffering for being a sinner is not the same as suffering for Christ. So don't go out and pursue vain, worthless, useless suffering on account of your own sin. That's not what I'm talking about. He says, okay, now that that's out of the way, let's keep talking. Verse 16. He says, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He says this, brothers and sisters, do not be ashamed to be accused of being a Christian. If the only thing that they can bring against you, the only charge that they have against you when they drag you before their courts and you endure suffering is the fact that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then step back and glorify God in that name because it's a gift from him. We should not be ashamed to suffer for Jesus Christ. We should not be ashamed of the gospel of God for it is the power of God unto salvation. If you look back just a little bit in chapter four, verses two through three, it describes what he's talking about when he says suffering for being a Christian. He says, so now you are to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You should no longer be living for your human passions, but instead your life should be characterized by living for the will of God. This is a distinction that Peter is making, and I think an important one for every single one of us in this room to realize. That to be a Christian, it means that we now live for God's will. It doesn't mean that we just come to worship on Sunday mornings. It doesn't just mean that we serve in church somewhere. No, it means that our life has changed from being about pursuing human passions to now pursuing the will of God. He continues in verse three, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and so they malign you. Their Christian witness was distinct. The way that they lived was noticeably different to those around them, and because of it, they maligned them. They spoke evil against them. 
This is the kind of suffering that the people were experiencing in 1 Peter, being marginalized, cast off to the side, seen as not like the rest of us, and so I don't want to have anything to do with you, kind of suffering for Christ. And in that moment when we experience that, and perhaps you have experienced it, and perhaps you're experiencing it right now, know this, that though you are rejected by the world, you are still chosen by God. Though you are rejected by the world, you are still chosen by God, and that is far better than being accepted by the world. Peter continues in verse 17. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What is he talking about here? Uh, The Greek text actually has the definitive article in front of it where it says it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. So it's not just talking about any kind of judgment. It's talking about the final judgment. In other words, the final judgment has begun and this judgment starts with Christians. So what is Peter saying here? He's pointing us towards the reality that when Christ returns, at the final judgment, there will be a sorting out of those who are of the household of God and those who are of this world. And right now, that has already started in the suffering that you're experiencing. You see, Christian suffering is a means to demonstrate our faithfulness to God. It's just like what the book of Mark talks about where it's how Jesus is talking about the parable of the soils and he talks about the second, second soil and there he's saying that some immediately received the word with great joy and enthusiasm but the moment that persecution comes they say, you know what, forget about it, I'm out. And what Peter's telling us here is that the judgment is beginning, this sorting out of those who are in Christ and those who are of the world has already begun and as the judgment is rendered, There are only two categories in which people fall into. He says it in verse 17. And if it begins with us, the household of God, giving us the first category, those who are chosen by God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, considered children, he goes on to say, then what will will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There are those who are children of the household of God and there are those who do not obey the gospel of God and there is no other category in which people will fit into on that last day before the Lord. And he's very specific to use the phrase obey the gospel of God because again, he doesn't say agree with information about Jesus or do all the things that good church-going people do. No, he says, those who obey the gospel of God, reminding us again of what Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll obey me. And it'll be your joy and satisfaction to obey me and to pursue after my will. Peter is setting up the distinction here and he's saying that those who do not really love Jesus and his good news will quit in the midst of suffering. It's just that simple, Peter says. If you don't really love Jesus, then when that suffering comes, you'll quit. You'll turn your back from Jesus and you'll just do what's easy or what's comfortable or what's safe in that moment. 
Peter's saying that suffering produces endurance and that a saving faith is an enduring faith. A saving faith is an enduring faith, exactly what Jesus said in the book of Mark. He said, but those who endure till the end will be saved. Interestingly enough, Jesus was talking about the suffering that people would face for his name when he made that comment. So Peter's making this distinction in verse 17, and then verse 18, he quotes from the Old Testament, and he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, as I was studying this passage, and when I came across that, I immediately thought, what in the world does that mean? If the righteous is scarcely saved? I mean, I went to one of two places. The first place that I went is like, God just barely squeaked me by. Like I was so bad, so evil, so detestable that God like, we just got him across the line. That was really close. Like the righteous scarcely saved. And then my second thought was like, okay, if he's talking about the righteous being scarcely saved, then it is if God like had to put forth a great amount of effort to save me. And he's trying so, so hard, and it's just this disgusting picture of God that we sometimes have where he's like straining himself and giving every bit of his power just so that he can barely make it happen. And it's like that is so not the God that we see described in the scriptures. It is not a hard thing for God to do anything at all, ever. The arm of the Lord is never too short. Our God is fully able, so surely that is not what this passage is talking about. So the righteous scarcely being saved, what does it mean? It means that because the world's response to Christians makes it so difficult for them to remain faithful, it seems as if they were scarcely saved. Because the suffering, the heat can get turned up so high that it appears as if people looking at it from the outside are like, how can anyone endure in the midst of such great suffering? And it's because we have a sovereign God who is behind us in the midst of our extreme suffering. And so the question that is constantly being asked of God's people is, will they remain faithful in the midst of this? And can I just remind us, for those of us who worry about that moment, for those of us who fear, will we stand up for the name of Christ? 1 Peter 1, verse 5, just as we talked about at the beginning, it says that we who are being guarded in our faith for salvation. So us coming to Christ and being born again to a living hope is due to God. And us staying in our faith and remaining faithful in the midst of this suffering is too a gift from God. So do not fear when that moment comes upon you because he will guard you in your faith. So Peter then reminds and encourages them with what they've been saved from with this passage. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In 1 Peter 4, 16, he was motivating them that faithfulness to God is showing them that Jesus Christ is worthy of their suffering and it is a glory or a rejoicing to suffer for Christ's sake. And conversely here in verse 18, Peter is showing them that those who reject the gospel will suffer ultimately and eternally. That it is not those who remain committed to Christ now and suffer for it who are experiencing ultimate harm. It is those who ultimately reject the gospel of God who will suffer eternally 
and ultimately. And in that, it's a reminder to remain faithful because God will protect us who are in Christ from ultimate harm and suffering. So stand firm in God's grace. And so how does Peter begin to wrap up this section? He begins in verse 19, saying, Therefore, therefore, in light of everything that I've just said so far for the last 38 minutes and 35 seconds this morning, in light of that, suffer according to God's will. Look, let those who suffer according to God's will. So he's not talking to those who are suffering for sinning. He's talking about those who are unjustly suffering for Christ's name. And he's saying to them, if you are suffering, brother and sister in Christ, know this. The world is not out of control. Your God is still sovereign. He is still wise. And he is still loving even in the midst of your suffering. So therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, number one, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So how do we respond? We first entrust our souls to a faithful creator. And isn't it really easy to entrust our souls to a faithful creator when everything in life is going well? It's like there are no problems. I'm not experiencing any difficulty right now. And so I can say very easily with my words, yeah, no, everything's in God's hand. I totally trust him in this. But then the moment that suffering comes, the moment that we experience something outside of what we think is normal, whether it be due to general suffering or suffering for the sake of Christ, in that moment, it's like, God, clearly you don't have your hands on this. God, clearly this is somewhere along the way gotten outside of your control. So God, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll get everything back under control and I'll wrap a nice bow around it and then once everything is back to where it should be, then I'll say that it's back in your hands. Clearly you're not capable, so let me do this, God. But what Peter is telling us is, brothers and sisters, when we experience suffering, first entrust your souls to your faithful creator. Know that he is faithful He has not forsaken you. He hasn't changed the plan somewhere along the way and said, you know what, I don't want you anymore and cast you to the side. He is the same as he was yesterday and today and he will always be the same. We can know that when we suffer, our God is faithful and he has not left us, not even for a moment. He is our creator. He gives life. He sustains life. And so we can trust our souls in his hands. They're in far more capable hands than ours. And secondly, Peter says this, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I must entrust my soul to my faithful creator and I must continue to do good no matter the consequences. Now, if you're like me, you're sitting there thinking, that sounds really nice, I'll just do good. Like, what in the world does that mean, to do good? And that's what First Peter has been developing for the first four chapters and telling us what it means to do good. And so what does it mean to do good? It means essentially this. Live like a Christian. Keep living like a Christian. The very things that brought your suffering upon you, don't stop doing them. Keep 
doing them no matter the consequences. 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15, being a Christian means to be holy. 122, we're to love one another from a pure heart. 211, we're to abstain from passions of the flesh. 213, we're to be subject to the government and authorities. 218, employees should be subject to their bosses. 3-1, wives be subject to your husbands. 3-7, husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. 4-2, live for the will of God, not for fleshly passions. 4-8, love one another. And 4-9 through 11, love one another and serve one another with the very gifts that God has given you. First Peter, brothers and sisters, is a call for Christians to endure for the sake of Christ. And that we're to do this by first looking back on the God-ordained suffering of his son that secured for us our salvation and that we can rejoice in doing it because we are looking ahead to Christ's glorious return when in that moment we will surely rejoice because God's people will be vindicated and his enemies will be judged. Jesus Christ is coming, and when he does that, we will no longer be exiles, but we will be at home with our creator. And so this morning as we leave, none of us leave this place in fear of when the moment of suffering comes upon us. None of us leave this room wondering, when it comes, will I stand? And how will I stand? Instead, this morning we all leave this room rejoicing, Rejoicing that our sovereign God is firmly in control of all things and knowing that because Christ has caused us to be born again, surely he will guard us in our faith for that great day of salvation. And because this world is not our home, we are seriously and truly and ultimately in every way bound for glory that we will experience every moment for the rest of our lives with our faithful creator. And so brothers and sisters, God's call to us today is to stand firm in his grace. And so Father, this morning, we rejoice in your word. We rejoice that you have spoken to us about life and knowing what we will experience. And Father, we proclaim that we have an unwavering, unflinching trust and confidence in your ability to keep us in the salvation that you have granted to us. And we rejoice to know that it is not us who has the power to do so, but it is you alone who does, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will keep us for all eternity. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room right now. As we get ready to leave this place and go back into our weeks and go back into a world where you have promised us that suffering is imminent, We go doing so prepared because of the hope that you have given us in Christ. And so I pray that my brothers and sisters in this room would have great courage to stand firm in your grace no matter the consequences. And that for those in this room who have heard this message and heard of the righteous scarcely being saved and what they will incur, that Father, they would turn to you and that you would grant to them the same gift that you have granted to us in Christ. And so this morning we rejoice 
knowing that this world is not our home, but we are headed for glory with you forever and ever. In Christ's name, amen.